This show is distributed by SoundCloud. Welcome. Welcome to episode 179 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. Now, introducing today's guest, let me first start by saying anyone would be crazy to take on Google, but then to actually start to get some traction in the search engine market, and then to get funding to take on Google is astonishing. Our next guest is Gabriel Weinberg. Welcome to the show. Great to be back. Yeah, that was a fancy intro, uh, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> so uh, we're going to have to up our game a little bit. Um, how long has it been on since you were last on? Has it been like a year now? You know, I have like no perception of time. Like you know, I have little kids and I don't know, it throws everything off. <laughs> but it, feel, it feels like it's been a while. I think the last time you were on, we did a panel show with Peter Cooper. And I don't know, so I guess look back in the catalog and see. But... Back then, it was definitely it was definitely way before you got funding, um, and way before your uh, recent uh, explosive growth. And hockey stick, hockey stick growth, hockey stick growth. Yeah. So, um, you know, for for it, for new for listeners who haven't been around for a while, before you listen to the rest of the sh- rest of the show, you may want to go back and listen to our, our initial interview with um, with Gabe. Do you do you have the number in front of you, Justin? Do you know? Have to know. <laughs> I'll check it out. Just one you second. Do your, let your fingers do the walking and find out. So, um, yeah, because we did a we did a really deep dive on your on your background and 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 got all the details about everything. And um, well, we yeah. have we texting sixty eight. That was the first one where we interviewed Gabriel um, about DuckDuckGo. Holy the, crap! Then so that was pretty early. Then uh, texting ninety nine. Um, Gabriel was on a panel show, and. Uh, Yep, that's that, those are the shows that he's been on there. Oh no, he was also on Texting ninety one with Phil Aman and you. Phil Aman, yeah, yeah, I remember Phil. That's when we gave we read you the Riot Act about giving up on Plugio. Oh yeah, that was a big <laughs> deal. That was that yeah, and and that made that really did make a difference. Since then, Plugio um, has I wouldn't say hockey stick growth, <laughs> more like a slow ramp. You had <laughs> a slow. bump. You had a bump. Yeah. Yeah. bump up so um yeah so anyway go go back listen to that show if you if you want or you can listen to this and then you know if you want to get like the the prequel then go back and uh, listen to that right. first first episode um so gabe tell us a little bit about what's what's been going on give us a i don't know i, I will go into the i can go into a bunch of specific questions but i'd just like to hear from you what's give us your favorite things to talk about what's been going on yeah i don't know it's, it's kind of like yeah uh, in the weeds, right? It's like a day-to-day progression. <laughs> Things yeah. change incrementally, so it's um, it doesn't feel as crazy. But what, the main difference to me is now there's a lot more people floating around. Like when we talked, um, you know, it was mainly just me, and I had a couple other people working on specific things. But um, now there's um, we have a kind of weird organization. Where we have lots of people doing part-time work on specific things, um, but. I'd say there's over 20 people floating around doing various things. Um, mm-hmm. And then, of course, we have this investment, um, which enabled us to get an office um, and, you know, hire some of these people. And so that's that's the main difference is I'm interacting with way more people. 
Yeah, because when we talked, you were just working at home. I think you had a baby. You had a, a, a little boy and a baby on the way. Does that sound about right? Yes. Well, I have two kids now, so that sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you have a third on the way? <laughs> no, no, okay. no third is coming. You're crazy. Okay, okay yes. Concerned. <laughs> yeah, so you, you read the fine print. For all of you out there who are thinking about having three, make sure you think very carefully before going beyond two. <laughs> so, yeah, so you were, you were working at home, and you, had somehow, you were somehow managing to be a stay-at-home dad, or at least a part-time stay-at-home dad, and launching DuckDuckGo at the same time, right? Right, yes. And then I imagine when you decided to, to raise money that you were going to make some kind of transition to not working at home. And getting an office is that was I well so we got an office because you know we got um, we we have one employee um, works there full time we have a bunch of part time people and more people are coming in so they couldn't all work in my basement so that was kind of (laughs) (laughs) we'd like to hire you let me show you this is my kitchen you'll sit here at the counter. (laughs) But, But nevertheless, I still I I'm in there. I'd say. Uh, 50-50, I'm either in the basement or at the office. So I still do work out of my house a decent amount at the I'm, moment. I'm curious, during the during this, the phase before you went hockey stick and just sort of moving up to that, you know, during the past year, how many hours a day were you working on DuckDuckGo? Um, it's a good question, but it's hard to answer and because I do I do this whole like, you know, 24 seven type of thing. Like I'm constantly thinking about it and I know that, I mean, you guys know this, it, it is a form of working, right? Yeah. Um, but, um, hard to say. I, um, it, when other schedules went in flux, my wife went part time. Um, and so each day is a little different, but definitely there's, I don't know, eight to 10 hours a day, something like that. I'd say. Okay, and you've always been in a position where you haven't had to do consulting. You've you've just been focused on DuckDuckGo. You've had enough money set aside that you've you've had an, you've had your basic daily needs met. Yeah, it's, it was really DuckDuckGo or the kids. Okay. Uh, those are my two things. And I do a, a little bit of angel investing on the side, but it doesn't take that much time. Yeah, no, now if I call, recall correctly, so you, your wife, she was either getting her PhD or working full time or something, and that's yeah, where you were saying. She got her PhD um, a long time ago. She's a, a statistician at GlaxoSmithKline um, okay. doing cancer research. And she um, went part-time at the at, – at, she had this maternity leave for the second baby, and then she came back in a part-time fashion. So now she works three days a week. One of those days is from home. Um, okay, so that, and that gives you the flexibility so you can kind of trade off a little bit, work out of your basement, as you say, and then, and then show up at the office on the other days. Is that – yeah, work. and we also we also it gets really the schedules. I'm I'm sure you know get very complicated <laughs> quickly. But we yeah. uh, so it's a balance of a number of things. Eli started uh, preschool. He was half day. Now he's going full day, three days a week, and um, it's right down the street from the office. So I'm I'm generally there at that time. And then we also hired a um, part time um, you know nanny to come in and help with the kids as well during the week. Um, so with all that floating around, it varies day to day. But I can easily get kind of a, you know, a full-time work weekend. Right. I see. I think your, your story is even more interesting because of, because of this. I mean, it's not, it doesn't follow the standard template. It's That's what I was going to say. It just doesn't fit into any box. I mean, it's, it's not exactly bootstrapping, but it's, it's, it's funded. But at the same time, the typical approach to funding is 
to go for the Twitter and get the billions of eyeballs type of concept, but it's not exactly doing that. It's more like a slow build, but then all of a sudden it goes on this hockey stick growth. <laughs> so yeah. to precursor the hockey stick growth thing, we have plateaued. <laughs> there were right. there was a lot of exogenous events that just happened to be coincidental that was causing that ridiculous uh, up, upstrip. But we have stayed. We're not going back down, so that's cool. But yeah, I agree with you. I mean, so just to put a point on that, like we've been because of that growth, you get a track. All these other, and you've already been funded. A lot of VCs want to fund you more. So, like, <laughs> I'm pretty confident. Um, in the past few months, we could have raised some huge Series B, uh, but we decided not to. That's kind of not what I'm interested in. Um, but that kind of goes to your point about um, it's not the normal path, I guess. Jason, you you mentioned this during our last show. Something about one of the biggest mistakes is to take too much funding too early. Oh, well, I'm just, um, I was just uh, sort of quoting the number one, I guess, uh, lesson learned from the Startup Genome Project. They say the number one thing, or I used to say, the thing that is the biggest killer of startups is raising um, or trying to scale before you have true mar- product market fit, I think. So, and I think Justin Offline, you were actually talking to me the other day, you thought that that's probably what happened to Mahalo. Right, they, he raised a bunch of money off his name and his his pre- past success, and uh, didn't necessarily have a product market fit, and and that's kind of what you see going on with Mahalo, switching from curated search to videos yeah, to they've mobile. Pivoted, they've pivoted three times now. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that, uh, Gabe? Um. So. Yeah, I mean, I kind of agree with that. I mean, so there, there's a couple other things floating around, though. Like, um, there was this great interview. Naval, who runs Venture Hacks, just did with with Jason, and he was talking about how you know he doesn't want to take money for AngelList, um, and you can ask you can ask the question, okay, well, what would he do with it and stuff like that? But fundamentally, he wants to keep his company really small because he thinks big companies kind of suck and they stop innovating, they're not fun to work at, and that kind of resonates with me in general. So I kind of like the Craigslist type of model where you kind of stay lean and just get more and more leverage in your marketplace and, you know, do a lot with few people. I just think that sounds a lot more fun than, than growing, you know, to hundreds and hundreds of people. Um, but I also agree with the general sentiment. If you raise money too quickly, it could be bad. I, I say one other thing though, is that for us, like, I think you could raise a ton of money right now and probably spend money on marketing and, you know, get pushed this privacy message and it may resonate. There might be a moment to capture a bigger market share and arguably um, one should do that, but that kind of feels inauthentic to me and I'm just less interested in it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, th- I, I can't remember what the stages were in the startup genome project. I read the whole, their whole report the other night and there's like four or five stages. Like stage one is discovery. Um, stage two is something like getting product market fit. Three is like efficiency and four is like when you just sort of squeeze out the cash or something right. like massive. I've read that report too. It's very interesting. Yeah, I, I think I think what we should do is get one of the um, the people who wrote it or worked on it on the show and have them really talk about it in detail because it's a, it's pretty fascinating. It's sort of uh, the approach that you're taking, Gabriel, kind of reminds me in a little way of of in rugby when the All Blacks will come on the field and they'll do that crazy dance and the competition are like, what what are these guys doing? What's what's going on here? I I don't understand how to react to this. I'm kind of scared of this. And I can imagine that the venture capitalists are like, what. You know, what's going on here? Yeah, kind of the whole burning bridges thing or burning your boats thing or something like that. <laughs> right. Um, 
Yeah, I think there's a bit of that. Of like, who, like, what are these people doing? This is not normal. Um, I mean, honestly, I mean, I can see this argument, uh, not to belabor that point about, you know, why not raise money and, you know, try to do mainstream press or not, because the part of these exogenous events that ran up our um, growth was press and people do stick on the site. So um, there is a real argument to be made for that, but I don't know, something about it just doesn't feel right. Mm. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, so you, you, your office is in, you're, you're located somewhere in Pennsylvania. I, I can't remember where exactly, right? You're, the office is now in Paoli, Pennsylvania. Paley. And where is that ro- located to the next, the closest major city? Um, it's right outside Philly. It's on the main line of, on the train station out of Philly, kind of like suburban, um, wherever anyone lives in the suburbs of that city. Right. So how did that affect the money raising process? I mean, you're, because you have a couple of things that are completely unorthodox. One, you're a single founder, right? Which the conventional wisdom says single founders don't succeed generally, right? And then, that, and the other one is that they don't like to fund people who are outside of the Silicon Valley area or at least aren't willing to relocate. So you're out in the middle of no man's land. You know, you're doing it yourself. Oh, and by the way, you're taking on Google, which, as we all know, is a solved problem. <laughs> so, I mean, what the hell? I mean, how, 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 do, uh, how do the uh, VCs think about it that? It was quite strange. I mean, I took it one further, too, and I was kind of <laughs> unwilling to do the dog and pony show somewhat because um, my wife was on maternity leave. We had this young baby when I, right when I was raising the money, and so I didn't feel right to travel much. I don't like to travel anyway. So I did most of this via Skype from my basement. Um, and <laughs> I love that. So you're not, you're like, you know what? I'm not coming to your office in Menlo park. I'm going to just go, we're just going to Skype and you're going to like it. <laughs> exactly. And so that definitely, um, seemed to rub the West coast the wrong way. <laughs> I would say I, I was able to get meetings basically because we're, we're doing, so we had some traction. We have a lot more now, but we had some in a, in a big market, right. in search. And then I had this previous exit, although it was a weird exit because it wasn't venture backed or anything. So it was also kind of outside their world, but it was enough to get meetings. Um, and so I'd get these meetings and it, it was pretty clear somewhere up front, some were not, you know, some were a little more backhanded about it, but that, you know, you're not on the West Coast, you're not in my office and you're also not in New York. And so like, there was like, what is going on here? That's um, pretty ironic when you when you consider that the, the technology that they're facilitating is to enable people to have those kind of meetings. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I personally find Skype video works well for a lot of things. I can see why you want to do in-person eventually, but my point was like, you know, if this gets more serious, yeah, I'll come out there and meet all the partners and stuff, but why should I do that for this, like, first meeting? Um, but most people do that, so... Did you ever do... I mean, at any point before you raised money, did you... I mean... Well, after you raised the money, did you go out and meet them for a handshake? Thanks. So I never went to California. Some of them got a little farther along there, and I did some partner meetings by Skype video, but I didn't. I never went to California for this. Um, I went. I met. um, uh, I went to a trip in DC, and I went to New York once, um, and that was about it. Uh, (laughs) That's like yeah, you'll fly for an hour or maybe a train. Train, yeah, train. I drove to DC, and I. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's no. Do you think? Okay. So initially, that probably puts them off, right? Because you're not gonna do the thing, the pilgrimage. But do you think at some part of them, it struck them as, you know, that this guy has a moxie that he doesn't really need us. 
and he's not willing to come out. So um, that's kind of interesting. I mean, you know, like I know this might sound kind of funny. I remember this has been so long, so it's going to sound kind of silly. But I remember as in college, it's like if 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 there was some pretty girl that you liked, the last thing you want to do is show that you really liked her because since she'd be he's going to blow you off and think, oh, I can get him any time. So you, you had to kind of you play. Need you need to, to stop with the pretty girl analogies. She knew she could get you in a minute, right? So you had to kind of like, you had to act like you didn't care. And that, that would work. Think any of that's going on here? I do think there's something about ambivalence and negotiation. And that's definitely a strong uh, point, especially when people have egos. But in, v, in VC raising, it's kind of really hard because like really, even hot companies go through the process and talk to 40 firms or something and only get a few term sheets. So it's sort of like, um, at the, I didn't really know what to expect. And I really was approaching it with, with, if I didn't get good terms for people I liked, I, um, just wouldn't do it. And so maybe they did sense that, um, in the end we did get a few term sheets. Um, and so it, you know, worked out well, but I think it could have easily gone the other way. Right. What do they think about the fact that you're also an angel investor on the side and, and, Typically, they want you to be like completely and utterly focused on what you're building. You know, that never came up at all, really. Um, hmm. I, uh, you know, I mean, I, I didn't, I definitely said that's, you know, it's obviously part of my background and I mentioned it, but no one ever seemed to be concerned with that at all. Um, I don't know. I think to some degree, like I waited so long to raise money um, and there was still a lot of uncertainty. A lot of people didn't want to go up against Google or be any part of that. But I did have enough kind of, I did have a real user base of people using the search engine as their primary search engine, which hadn't been done for a while, um, although the volume was low. And so there was kind of a real traction ability that, um, I don't know, lend credence to more stuff. Like I, I didn't get asked a lot of background questions, I guess. Right. If well, that makes sense. Yeah. I, I, just out of the term sheets that you got, I mean, how... Did you have to go through the process where you get these really nasty term sheets and you have to like, you know, as part of the negotiating process and really fight back and say, this is ridiculous. We're not doing this, 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 and this, or were they fairly reasonable? What kind of happened was, is, you know, I think it really depends again, this is why you really want to get multiple people involved in your process in VC, multiple term sheets and acquisition, multiple bidders, you know, cause all that stuff can fall away pretty quickly if you get that and people really want to compete for the deal. Right. Um, so we did get, uh, each term sheet we got was better, uh, terms and I didn't really play them off much of each other. And so what ended up happening was, uh, but, but they knew we had other people involved. Um, and it's it, kind of like, so a, it's like a blind auction. Right, right. It's exactly. Like, you know there are other competitive bidders. Um, put in your best bid, you know? A- anybody who watches, um, was it, um, was it How- The House Hunters? <laughs> or any of those? Yeah, eight- I was thinking about that. Yes. <laughs> you, you ever seen those, Gabe? Yeah, you know yeah. yeah. My yeah, wife yeah, watches so- that stuff all the time. Right, property. Yeah, I, I, I do. I, if, if you have a wife, you're probably going to watch that every once in a while. So the property <laughs> versions and um, those things, they'll be like, and it seems like the blind the blind auction can work pretty well because you don't have to go back and forth. You just have, you don't have to like act like a hard ass. You can just say, look, there's a few people, there's a few people, everyone's really interested, but in your best offer. And you're, I don't know if you, how that works out mathematically on statistically, like when you get better, if it's a blind auction or not, but I don't know. What do you, what do you think about that in terms of how it played out for you? 
So I think that definitely there's something to that. But what actually happened to us is, I mean, so USV, Unisquare Ventures ended up funding us. And from what I understand, they generally just don't mess around on term. And with us, when they said that, and everyone I've talked to is um, also said the same thing. They just have a very clean term sheet. And they're... And they don't necessarily, I mean, they care about valuation so much, but somewhat, but not overly concerned. So basically they came in last with just the best term sheet. And, um, you know, I basically just went with them. There was a little negotiation, but really not much. Um, well, was it the best, was it the best on, in terms of just financially, like they gave you the most money for the least um, equity or was it a matter of like all of those kind of provisions that can get kind of sticky if you don't understand? Yeah, all of the above. I mean, it was just a clear cut winner. Um, and I think that they have the attitude, which I like, is that and it's entrepreneur friendly, that they just don't mess around with all that, those things. Because their view is that They've made all their money on uh, businesses that end up being long-term, you know, independent businesses with a very long time horizon. You know, Twitter and Zynga in the first fund, and now like Foursquare and Kickstarter and Etsy in, in their second. And so they just think those kind of things don't matter because they're going to have follow-on financing eventually, and it'll mess it up. Um, and so just keep it clean initially. And so. He- Fred Wilson, he's the he's kind of like the big name over there. At least the one I think people who most people would know from Union Square Ventures. He seems like he's the VC equivalent of Paul Graham. Like you don't dick around with Paul Graham. You know, Paul Graham's going to give you a good deal, and if he offers it, you take it. (laughs) You know, it's like kind of. I mean, he seems like he's that kind of guy. Like when you hear him talk about things, it's. You know, I've I've probably watched I don't know at least a half dozen to a dozen of his talks over the years, and one of them in particular, he was talking about there was there was a, some study that was done about how well um, companies do when they have very active engagement from their the VCs. The VCs have people on the board and they give them lots of advice and try and tell them what to do. Sort of the micromanaging approach versus versus the um, you know, VCs who took sort of a hands-off approach and just said, hey, you guys, do your thing. Let us know if you need anything. We'll be here. Otherwise, good luck. And he said that, if I recall correctly, that the study showed that the VCs that took the hands-off approach, let the, let the entrepreneurs run their business, that those did uh, substantially better. Yeah, I've, I've, I've heard that as well. I mean, there's, all, there's all sorts of selection bias in there. But, right. um, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, they take a very hands-off approach. I mean, they certainly have with us. And has that been your kind? Was that something you were looking for, or did you care? Or what I, um, I was more interested in partnering with someone who could really help the company like grow in areas that I didn't really know what I was doing as much. Um, and so I liked their. I mean, I really liked everything about them. They were they were kind of, you know, like a lot of people, someone's ideal first choice. But I didn't really think they were going to be into. DuckDuckGo because it doesn't fit their core thesis of um, investing in engage uh, networks of engaged users because um, we don't really have a network per se. Mm-hmm. Um, and even in, in Fred himself in a, in a blog and comments, someone asked about that and he's just like, yeah, we just we couldn't pass up the opportunity to, to mess around with the search business because it was interesting. <laughs> um, so I, I find that great, but. Um, yeah, I mean, I I, uh, I forget what your question was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh um, you know, were were you looking? Did you have an opinion? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, my I so 
But yeah, my opinion was really, I'm going to be with these people for the long term. I was hoping to raise enough money where potentially we'd never have to raise money again. And so, um, you know, unlike a lot of these companies that raise round after round and kick people off the board and do all that, I, I was looking for someone to be there and actually help for the long term. And I really liked their long term vision of the internet. And so it kind of clicked. Now, I like the other two people who, who gave us term sheets as well for different reasons. One, had a really uh, knowledgeable about privacy and um, kind of added value there. And the other was um, had more of a strategic uh, consulting background. I just thought pressed the marketer kind of in a fresh way and was would have added value there too. So I don't know. I could have seen um, usefulness on all on all those. Did you did you have this in mind? Um, was this? I mean, I know this isn't the end game, but was this a step that you had planned many years ago? To get no, to this, no, this has all been a kind of a random walk. Um, <laughs> I had thought that, based so my story to investors and and you know it was the is the real story was it, at the end of kind of uh, now I'm mixing all the years, but before we were, right recently before we raised money, it became clear that we had gotten some kind of product market fit, and that I was um, capitally starving the business. <laughs> because I'm cheap. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that probably is a very suboptimal result. And so I thought it would be a good time to, you know, get some other people's money in there. Um, cause I didn't have that vast of fortune where I felt, you know, to spend it all on that. Um, and I, so it could be helpful to hire some people and move faster, um, that kind of thing and make a more established company and go at it. And so it, 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 it wasn't initially planned cause I never thought we'd actually get to that point. I wasn't sure. Um, but once we got there, it was very clear that we it would be good for the company if we raised the money. Do you have at this point any idea of a potential revenue model? Yeah, we actually have um, an ad on the site. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> we have an ad on this site. We have an ad. <laughs> have an ad. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we have an ad. <laughs> so yeah, basic it's the same revenue model as other search engines. Um, <laughs> I, I'd love to do something a little more innovative, but I I haven't thought of it yet. Honestly, that ad is going to kick Google's ass, right? Well, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Um, oh, well, I have to say, is whoever's your ad guy, you need to have a long talk with him and say, "Look, we need at least two of these." Yeah, two ads. <laughs> you need exactly. to step it up, buddy. <laughs> that's me so, pushing back on that. <laughs> all right, oh, that's fine. So, um, okay. Well, when you decided you wanted to raise money, um, well, what was your thought process back? Then? I mean, you, so you just one day woke up in the morning and you're like, damn it, we need some money. Or was it your wife just kind of said, you know, it was, it was like many things I do, very, very unplanned. <laughs> um, <laughs> we had, and, and if I had planned it out, I would have done it probably um, differently and probably with a worse outcome. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, uh, you, we had the baby and I was like, yeah, I mean, this I this is kind of I this is a good point to raise money and that was kind of the thing that <laughs> spawned me. And then and then I was just like, let's let's just do it. And if I'm going to do it, I better I guess should do it right. And um, you know, then I I spent a lot of time doing it. But yeah, I just basically one day I just woke up and decided to do it. And I asked my wife and she said, "All right, let's do it." <laughs> and that was it. it. Well, it, okay. Now, <laughs> I, one thing I noticed is that it wasn't just Unisquare Ventures that it was a it was uh, a bunch of angels as well. Yes, is that how it worked? It, was, it wasn't like a because a lot of times you'll have like a lead investor, 
being a VC, usually a big name VC and some smaller VCs, but you had a big name investor and a bunch of angels. Why did it happen that way? Right. So this is, this goes back to very much lack of planning. So I initially thought out and I was like, you know, maybe we'll just raise a little bit of money from angels. Um, cause I don't know if I really need that much. Um, you know, cause we, we were running so cheaply. Um, and so I thought maybe we'd raise a million from angels. And so I initially, um, started on that track and was talking to angels with regards to raising a million. And then midway through after some, there was some VC interest and I started talking about numbers and learning more about the VC process, about how they're more, um, ownership driven than kind of valuation driven. I I thought more about, you know, what it would mean to raise a little more. And so I, I jumped up the number from one to 3 million, um, and moved into the VC range, but I had met some angels that I thought would be uh, very value add. One in particular who who had wanted to kind of lead the angel round. If I was going to do that, Scott Bannister, and so I definitely wanted to bring him back in. And then I had met some others along the way. Then Union Square introduced me to a couple as well. Um, so they're they're all coming in for the same valuation. Yeah, same terms, same valuation. I see. Yeah. What what percentage of the round did the the angels do versus the Union Square Ventures? They did, I think. Um, Twenty percent, I think. Okay, okay and, and you do, you raised three million. Was that the? Is that yeah. the amount? Is, yeah. Are you allowed to say what percentage you've gone gone in for for that three million? Um, no. Okay, fair I don't enough. think so. <laughs> tell us, just tell us anyway. It's okay. <laughs> no one will know. It's not. It wasn't that crazy. I mean, I and in fact, I was I was trying not to make it that crazy. Um, I kind of wanted to be what I felt was kind of. Fair valuation for, you know, potential. for what you'd got, you know, for where you'd got to, you want to where I got to and potential. I just wrote a post about this too. potential exit opportunities. You know, I think when VCs come in and angels come in, they're looking for a kind of 10 times return, you know, on that valuation yeah. roughly. Um, and some of these crazy valuations, I mean, like, I mean, they know what they're doing. They're obviously making the bet, but I think a lot of the entrepreneurs who are taking that would definitely sell their company instantly for way, way less than that. Um, and so I didn't really want to do that. I, you know, I wanted to tell the story. I didn't want to lie about the story I was telling. So you, yeah. didn't, you didn't basically do $3 million for 1%, something like that. You did something no. much more sensible that, that they're going to really make some good Absolutely. good Absolutely. Yeah, they feel that they're invested in it and, and everything. And part of that is I felt I could do that too because, one, I wasn't necessarily planning on taking – lots of rounds of funding Two, I was a single founder. So I own most of the equity to begin with. And so even if it more dilution hit, it was, I still own a lot, you know, the, the majority of the company. Um, and so I don't know, I felt it was fair all around. We, you know, when you get VC funding, I mean, there's always that concern. I mean, not always a concern, but you hear the concern that, uh, at some point, the VCs are going to try and replace you as a CEO. That, you know, if if if, it's, if the company starts to succeed, they're going to say, "Okay, hey, you did a great job. Thanks a lot, but you're not really the guy who's going to take us to scale. You got us to second base. So why don't you take a seat over here and be the CTO or something? And um, we're going to bring in this gray-haired guy and and pay you know and pay him a chunk of money, and he's going to be the you know the uh, the CEO. I mean, were you concerned that that? Might might happen, or is that yeah? Absolutely, your- I would already done. The, it's not kind of like the traditional. Nap. Not that that should be the, not that you should want that in any situation, but in particular in my situation, I already run this for you know three and a half, going on four years, depending on how you count it, and so I wanted nothing to do with any kind of situation where I could possibly get thrown out of it. 
Um, and so that was actually pretty important to me. Um, but no one really took issue with that. Yeah, because I, I remember this post that uh, Ben Horowitz wrote, and Ben Horowitz from Andreessen Horowitz, and he, I think it, w- w- it was in regards to, it was a story about LoudCloud, and I guess it was right after they raised some funding, uh, they went to sit down to, to, at the at the uh, I don't know the headquarters of the VCs, and and the first thing one of the partners says is, "So when are we going to get a real VC? I mean, of a real CEO? When are we going to get a real CEO?" Exactly. <laughs> and I he's mean, just yeah. like, gulp, you know, like I mean, what an what a I mean, I can't, what an insult, you know? And, the, and then he's just sort of, obviously, I guess that really stung him. And for some reason, he was able to hold on and they ended up exiting. I don't know what, what they sold that company for. They renamed it and sold it for like half a billion dollars. Everything he touches is, is some ridiculous amount, right? <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I was actually pretty sensitive to this. I actually talked to a bunch of entrepreneurs who raised VC because I really wasn't, um, I had never raised VC, venture capital before, been in a company that had raised it. And so, um, I was pretty wary of the whole process. And so I talked to people who had been burned like that, um, who had raised money, you know, in like six different companies and had all these war stories. Um, and they convinced me that, you know, you really want to, you really want to go in with someone that you trust long term. And so the initial, per, the initial people I contacted were VCs who I knew um, personally, um, had an established relationship with, and I would have gladly um, taken, you know, and in general would have taken way less valuation terms for someone that I trust. I probably would have never done a deal with someone I didn't trust because I didn't need the money. But so well, I think that's very important. As okay, my, I got a question. Uh, so well, I, want, I want to follow up on this if you're going to switch directions. No, I'm not, I don't really, can, I don't think I'm going to switch directions. Let me ask my question and then you can tell me if you're switching directions. <laughs> okay. uh, what it is, is um, given that you, you were working on this deal, I'm wondering, you, you said that it took a lot of effort to create this deal how much effort like we we working on this every day for six months kind of effort or yeah i mean so it was it was every day for we had a good story but it was still uh, a lot of time sink it it was only three months maybe um uh, maybe two months every second of it taking meetings and phone calls and stuff it was very tricky because um I, like I said, I timed this very poorly, almost at the end of when my wife was going back to work. And so in the middle of this, she went back to work, and then I had this baby around half the time. And so I was, <laughs> You're bouncing the baby on your knee. I was literally bouncing the, the baby on mute, I swear did, to did God. Did it have an impact on DuckDuckGo, uh, put, putting that extra effort into trying to raise this money? I mean, did it did it? Wait, hold on, hold, 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 hold on. So you, are, were you bouncing the baby on your knee and during the Skype video call? Yes, uh, not on, my, <laughs> on this little like uh, <laughs> thing they sit in that vibrates, you know. Oh, that is fantastic! So, like over your shoulder, they see the baby just jumping in the doorway, being a little bouncer, and they're like, "Okay, so yeah, uh, Gabriel, again about those numbers." You're like, "Hold on, hold on, it's like, hold on a second, Let's give me a Oh my lord, that's like a Judd Apatow movie right there. Possible, <laughs> but it was happening. <laughs> All right, so, is- so did it affect? Did did it affect DuckDuckGo and the um, growth and the numbers? Because you, I guess, taking your eye off the ball of the actual product to do this. Yeah, I mean, I was definitely spending less time on product. I mean, there's no question about it. I mean, the the, the product itself was very stable at this point. So, like, um, you know, it wasn't it wasn't like falling apart. You know, servers weren't dying or anything. But um, there's definitely there was definitely less innovation during that period. Absolutely. Hmm. Yeah. The well, the question I was going to ask before Justin switched topics on me um <laughs> is uh you, you said about trust about um you, you were going to pick a vc that you trust 
And um, the question I would have is like, how how well did you know them to really trust them? I mean, you can have a couple conversations with somebody, you know, even have dinner with them a couple times. I mean, but you don't really know them, right? You know, especially you don't know them when the shit hits the fan and, you know, things go down and you're in a down round or, you know, whatever. I mean, people could just, you know, slice your throat and you you wouldn't you won't know until that time comes. I mean, how do you know who you can trust? I mean, especially if it's like if it's if it's just only a series of brief encounters. Yep. So I mean, the first answer is if you have a long established relationship with them, I mean, that's that's the surefire way to know. So the first person I went to, I actually had, had known for over a decade. Mm-hmm. Um and they were one of the firms that ended up giving up a term sheet. Um and so that that's one way. Um mm-hmm. the second way for Union Square I mean, they, they, they have a decent track record, um, but I went and talked to companies that had um, sold or not done well um, and talked to them, frankly, about what happened um, and kind of got the inside story. Okay, um, so they, these were companies that were funded by Union Square Ventures. Things did not go well from them, and so you could find out, okay, when things go bad, how do these guys behave? Exactly. Both and in they, the kind of went sour case and also maybe the early acquisition case, you know, all, all the different types of cases. So I tracked down some of those entrepreneurs and talked to them. Um, I did the same for uh, the other firm uh, as well. Um, and I mean, that, that, that's the best way I know without, um, you know, <laughs> without having known them for, for years. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. sounds like a, that's a really good way. How did you track those people down? Um. Pretty easily. I mean, like, I, I, I'm, I guess I'm not surprised anymore, but like, uh, you guys are probably know the same way doing your show, but people, entre- other entrepreneurs will talk to other entrepreneurs very easily. I mean, so yeah. you can pretty easily find out what companies a VC funded, you know, on Crunchbase and other things. And then, you know, just look at the ones that didn't do well and um, go just reach out to them by email. So, well, if, so you probably can't get into specifics, but what would be the general consensus if you could give us a, an overall vibe? Um, so the general consensus for actually all 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 of the the three VCs were was very positive. I mean, they are generally very hands off, not trying to do things, uh, control the situation. Um, in some cases, gave you know if they disagreed with the decision, um, and I've done this too as an angel, give you know your opinion and why, and try to be forceful with it, but at the end, not try to block anything. Right, that's I- cool. I mean, so three out of three seems pretty amazing because you hear so many horror stories with VCs. Why do you think it was three for three? Like all three of them were sort of good guy VCs as opposed to bad guy VCs. Um, I think it was, I think we might have ended up getting more term sheets if we played through, but I didn't, um, it might have just been, a you know, who was interested in us and I was interested in them because I didn't really, um, because we were getting early interest, I didn't really push hard, like, follow-up contacts and emails and you know i didn't try to really push to get term sheets mm-hmm. does that make sense yeah um so some of those ones that might have been worse you know may have come in if i had pushed them and they might have come with crazy terms or something you know um i also didn't pitch really um second tier vcs um I, I was going to go insert, you know, in a kind of concentric circle, but I, I only pitched ones that I had pretty good recommendations from. So that was probably right. a self-selection thing. Now, were you uh, dealing with uh, Fred Wilson directly? I mean, like I said, like, you know, we were talking about he's the 
most well known of of the firm, uh, or or do you have like another partner that you deal with? I yeah. So Brad Burnham is the one who's on our board. Um, okay, that's who I dealt with um, from the beginning. And actually, I came in through an associate, uh, Christina. Um, but yeah, I like huh. Brad a lot. Okay, um, but it's USV is a bit weird because they have a they because they're hands off they they kind of all participate in the deals like Brad comes to the meetings but I've gotten probably more emails from Fred and interest from Fred um, and Albert um, than f- from Brad um, just because Fred's always doing these in you know talking to all these people you know. Right, um, but I always see Brad just forwards me these internal emails. So, you know, they have like kind of a cohesive unit. They're talking all the time um, over email, and so they seem to be talking about all their deals all the time. I.e., it's very less siloed than other firms. It seems mm, like right, right. Uh, okay, so and I, I was going to switch the subject a little bit, just unless you had a follow up. Well, I wanted to move on to a, li- a little bit about just the the building of DocDocGo and what what Gabriel's been actually doing. To market it. Not to okay, I got a, um, I got a, I got a segue into it though. I got a good segue. Okay. Cool. okay. So um, you raised the three million dollars, and the question is, how? What was your plan for spending that? I have a, I, and the reason I ask that is because I think it seems like it can go a couple of ways. I mean, I, I had a conversation with a good friend of mine who's received VC funding, and he, he's, he regrets how he spent the money. He's like, he was, he played it too conservatively, and he felt like, you know. And he and I, so I kept asking him about it because it seemed like he had his thoughts weren't worse. He had some misgivings about it. And he said, "Look, if you're going to raise it, you better spend it and 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 really achieve liftoff. Like, don't play safe with the money um, because you're giving away a lot of um, you're giving away equity, you know, and uh, you may not really be getting anywhere. I mean, had you thought like you like you knew what you wanted to spend it on and you were going to be able to spend it or?" Are you still kind of like figuring out how you're going to spend it? Um, no, I had no idea. I, I had a good story for a million dollars. And after that, zero knowledge of what you would spend it on. But I basically wanted a big buffer so we never run out of money. And I, I liked the idea of never having to raise money again. Um, mm-hmm. So I kind of like that. And having done that, a million would have just been too small to give me that psychological buffer. <laughs> how many? How Honestly. much time? If how much of a runway does it give you um, uh, to to sort of continue? Because it's obviously something you've staffed up to a certain degree, or you've increased your expenditures. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It um, this growth. So I wasn't expecting us to grow this quickly. Um, I had kind of pitched that you know it would get us to 100 million um, searches a month. You know, in 18 to 24 months, um, and we're at about 45 million now, and we were at eight or seven when we were raising money. Wow. Um, and wow. so that amount of growth in our one ad <laughs> um, <laughs> has actually uh, increased our revenue a lot. And so our, um, you know, we, we've staffed up a bit, but we're actually not losing that much money. Um, and so I feel pretty good about our situation in terms of being able to grow and do whatever we want um, without having to worry much about what we're spending. And that's mainly because we're not spending a lot of marketing um, I think a lot of companies go out and then they spend a lot on, on marketing after this, and we just haven't done that. And I don't have any immediate plans for that either. What are you? I, well, Justin, you can answer the question because I know, I know well, what you're going to ask. What I want to know is how do I see the ad? <laughs> <laughs> um, first of all, you got to turn off ad block. Do you have ad block on? No, I don't have ad block on. No. 
Uh, search for something, you know, like something very commercial, like, you know, like a car or something. Okay. <laughs> search, probably, yeah. yeah. Search for your dream car, Justin. Yeah. You know. Okay. What's your dream car? Audi. I just Audi. I had an Audi. That's a good search. Yeah, I see, uh, there's a, uh, there's a, I see a considered Mercedes Benz ad. <laughs> oh yeah, sponsored link. You see, it's so good. I didn't even notice it was an ad. See, the thing is, we've we've what we've done is we put it below. It's, it's also uh, reduces revenue too, but we decided to put it below any zero click information or the official site, and so it it will sit at the top if you don't have that information. But if if you do have that, it sits below. Okay, so yeah, I see a sponsored link. So I searched for my my dream car, which is a Maserati, and it's like get Maserati Los Angeles here as a sponsored link. Okay, the ad, right? Um, that's, that's that's very cool. I like it, and I mean it's it's just cutting edge and an ad. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, <laughs> right. We kind of take you're kind of combining you're combining Google. You're going you're kind of going retro Google. You know, it's kind of going really super simple. Or you might say you're combining Google with uh, Apple simplicity. I like to say that. We're we coming the Apple search engines. I'm going to say it enough until Apple just tells me not to say it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you want to say it until you're big enough that they actually care that you're saying it. Exactly. But something yeah. tells me that Apple would never have that duck logo on any of their products. Yeah, I think you're you got, a, you got a problem with the duck? What? No, I, obviously I like the duck, but I'm just you saying. with the duck? No, I mean, it's a great duck. I, I, yeah, I, okay. <laughs> so you said you're not spending any money on marketing. Well, where's the growth coming from then? Um, so we, we had always been growing organically, um, but just not at that slope, right? And mm -hmm. then in January, uh, after we took funding, I got back to the project that I had been working on, which was this visual redesign of the site, which was kind of like 100 small changes and some bigger ones, but mainly small tweaks to make everything kind of look nicer and run smoother. Um, and we launched that mid-January, right? You can see here, it's right at the bottom of the, that where the uptick of the graph is. And so what I think that did was it increased the stickiness percentage of people trying out the search engine. And so always like people have been referring their friends and family, but oftentimes it never stuck. Um, but I think it increased the percentage of it sticking just because it was a nicer it looked the site looked looks a lot nicer than it did when I look at old screenshots. Um, and then the other thing after, right after that, so it was good timing because right after that, then there was a whole series of various press that we got um, uh, kind of grouped in with Google Stories. So uh, first, Google launched this Search Plus Your World thing, and you might remember, um, which has kind of fallen off the radar because of the pri other privacy stuff, but they were putting Google Plus everywhere in their search results, and um, Twitter and Facebook responded uh, with this plugin called Focus on the User. And anyway, we got mentioned in a bunch of that stuff because we don't do the, the filter bubble kind of stuff. So that was one wave, and then the second wave is Google, um, you know, announced their privacy policy changes that were going to happen March first, uh, where they're going to combine the profiles from the various projects, and so um, that created a bunch of press. And then there was this Data Privacy Day on January 28th and I think just be we had tweeted our microsites that we made like a year before and I think because of the Google stuff and um, floating around you know they became more receptive to it and it got voted in on the front page of Reddit for a while that sent a bunch of users in and then um, up in the ramp up to the March 1st uh, move over there was a whole nother rave of press and, and that wave we got a bunch of national press we were on NPR like five or six times a week, and then in the national French and German um, T 
TV stations as well. Do you have and anyone doing full-time PR? No one. All this was inbound or they never talked to us. Um, wow. This was all just random. So, yeah, because I would say, I was just about to say. So, that so if you're I would li- correct that. So we do have, um, we, we now have a part-time person who does business development who kind of pings people if they, if they write about Google or something related and um, says like, oh, hey, you should check out DuckDuckGo. But that's, that's pretty much it. Yeah, because, well, a couple of those things I think you did were what you would classify as micro-opportunities, which is actually, I don't know if you came up with the term, but the first time I ever heard anyone say it was you, I, I believe in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you said it on our, I think, our first interview. I don't know if we wrote, if you I wrote, wrote about, it, about it. about it. And then yeah. You okay. About it. Yeah. Which I really like. I like the micro-opportunity concept because it's like, it, and I think I've, I start, I'm starting to see people do that more like on Hacker News. Like you can see something hits a nerve, and then somebody will quickly follow up and they figure out how can I leverage the attention on this topic to point to you know what I'm doing. And I think I you used to do that a lot. I haven't seen you. I haven't seen you do it as much, at least on Hacker News. Maybe you've kind of grown beyond uh, the Hacker News being a, a necessary channel for you. But um, yeah, it seems like these things you talked about were all you'd classify as micro opportunities. Yeah. So I mean, so in relation to that. I was definitely available. If anyone wrote in, you know, I'd get on the phone with them, you know, almost immediately. And what was interesting about that is I didn't, I get emails from people asking questions like, oh, I'm a blogger reporter and I don't really check up on them much. So I don't really know. I always give full responses to everyone. I like the, the French newspaper one. It was kind of like the French New York Times sent in a lot of traffic to us. Um, but I just thought it was some random blogger. <laughs> um, <laughs> he said, know, was this like, Lamont? Is this Lamont or something? <laughs> yeah, that was Lamont. Yeah, I didn't really know what it was, and uh, so I was like, oh, whatever. And um, <laughs> oh, just but, Lamont. Whatever. Hey, have you tried the duck duck <laughs> yeah, Exactly. <laughs> he sent in this email, and I was like, I just responded to it. But um, in any case, so I responded to opportunities. The other ones that I seized upon that I'd call micro opportunities were um, this data privacy day thing. I saw it coming up, so we did a logo, and I knew there was stuff around it and I specifically tweeted out our kind of microsites and hope that someone would do something but I didn't actually push it myself beyond that um, and then when we broke a million a day I tweeted that out because I figured people were following it and that might turn into some stories and it did and then I also mentioned our increased traffic in the newsletter when I ramped up more trying to make stories out of our growth that spurred more growth <laughs> um, right, right. and it did work would you consider having a full-time PR person? Well, oh, oh, Justin, yeah, I think you're kind of off here. What's that? Oh, no. So, I'm, oh, oh, I was done. You're done? I was done. Okay. I was done, yeah. Well, um, then by all means, Justin, go on. Would, would you consider having a full-time PR person? No, because I just I can't see what they would do. Um, I, I had tried to reach out, besides what Prakash, who's doing that now, is doing, and it doesn't take much of his time at all, you know, maybe 20 minutes a day. Um, I... I, I just don't see what they would do to do anymore. The thing that I could see them doing, which is kind of what I was alluding to earlier about raising money, is we've been approached by various like TV stations and um, you know radio stations to do ad buys and even do some relatively you could, might call it innovative, I might call it crazy things like you know weave weave our name into into TV shows when they mention privacy or something like that, um, <laughs> and. You know, you could argue that that you know that that might take someone's time to find that opportunities and do that. Um, but just, I just, I don't know. Something about it doesn't feel right. Huh. The uh, I, what I'd, I'd like to, I know we're kind of leaking back into a past episode, but I'd, 
I think just to get a little perspective on things, it'd be fun to hear kind of like your various steps. It sounds like you had steps in, in, in your user traction. Like you, you, you bump up, you hit a level, you sit there for a while, then you have another bump up. And usually you can sort of sort out what that bump came from. And what were from the very first days? I mean, I meant you started zero and what got you your first bump and, you know, like what were the steps through the path? Yeah, just a higher level, I definitely find that's what's happened is we've had kind of step functions. I mean, we've had this slow growth, but there's definitely many step functions. And then talking to um, Brad about all their USV companies, he said that he's seen that phenomenon happen time and time again with, you know, he's on, he's on the board of Tumblr, in particular Tumblr, but most of their companies have seen that kind of um, kind of go along, grow a little bit, and then jump up, you know, kind of things. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so early on, um, uh, we saw launch on Hacker News, so that brought in the initial kind of users. Um, How many was that? I mean, very, very few. <laughs> 500, <laughs> like 500 or 1,000 or something like that? Yeah, probably less. They even sticked. I mean, I remember kind of two months after we launched Hacker News, we had 10,000 searches a month that month, and that included our big Hacker News story. <laughs> right. Um, right. So it, which means that you have probably had hundreds of users yeah exactly or you're just coming there every now Le- less than hundreds i mean if they're i guess if they're doing what i mean ten thousand divided by 30 isn't really that much <laughs> exactly thousand you know so, or, or me, in, in just a, just as a, as a comparison data point um and and I, I know i've said this before in the show but i think it's fun to talk about is is uber they it was the, i think travis told me it was the end of the second month they had 10 trips in one day a big spike of 10 whole trips and that was a big like oh crap this might actually work and uh i just think it's interesting when you see all these companies that end up doing really well and blowing up i mean they all start as modest as as, as anyone else as any other companies just really yeah, so so you you were like 300 searches a day i guess around this time right yeah exactly something like that i think in orders of magnitude too like the uber example you know we go from 10,000 to 100,000 to a million a month to 10 million you know um, right but I'm trying to think of other big stuff functions. So we had, I mean, the ones I annotated on the site are big, but before that, because um, that only goes back to uh, 2010, um, I had early on done some SEO kind of stuff, and that brought in users early on. Um, mm-hmm. And I also did some paid advertising experiments on Reddit, brought in a bunch of users, um, and StumbleUpon um, brought in a bunch of users as well. And those were, those were, those were pretty big um, Functions for me. The billboard one did that? Oh yeah, to... that was humongous. That was, but that was all. I'm talking way before that. Okay. Um, yeah, absolutely. So after that, um, the billboard um, was the next major one, and then the microsites were the next step functions. Wait, did we cover the billboard one in a past show, or was that since the the show? I think that may have been since the show. Was it? Well, why don't you tell us about the billboard one then? Because I, you, there was a billboard in. Was it in? Um, it was in Silicon Valley. It was on the yeah. like big. It was on the big highway there. This to, was another good decision that was completely random. I woke up one day and thought we should. I should buy a billboard. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing today, honey. I'm buying a billboard. <laughs> and I was like, "Is that a crazy idea?" And my wife, that's due to my, you know, my uh, litmus test. And she's like, "No, it's not too crazy." And I was like, "All right." That's enough for me. Scale, like, I mean, after all, you are building a search engine to compete against Google. So at least on that scale, it's pretty reasonable. Exactly. So I, um, I thought it would be an interesting kind of 
notion to educate more people to get stories around privacy and leverage it to get national press to put this billboard um, uh, near Google. And so we, we put it in a great location on uh, right um, when you come off the Bay Bridge going to San Francisco on the 101. Um, and it really was very inexpensive in retrospect. It was like $7,000, I think, was the total cost. Um, for a month? Um, for a month, yep. And what did it say again? And what did it say? What did the billboard say? It said, Google tracks you, we don't. Search better at DuckDuckGo.com, I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, it worked great. So we got, I, 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 did, the, I did the billboard and then I had the idea after talking to some people that, you know, maybe we should put a site around it. And that was the genesis of this don't track us site. And I got the site together and decided to just put that out two weeks before, um, just cause it was done really. It wasn't really much of a plan, but it turned out to be good. Um, and that got really popular in hacker news and got written up in a bunch of places. And then I used that, uh, traffic to, to tell the story to get, um, in the more national press. So I got the Wired and uh, USA Today to write article about it. Um, okay, so I, I got to say two things real quick here. If you don't, are you, are you, are, are, I'll let you finish, but I got I'm done. Things. I'm done. I can just go on randomly. I know. But yeah, these are great. Yeah, that's these that's are great. the basic story. Yeah. <laughs> okay, two things are really funny here. First of all, it kind of reminds me of that episode of The Simpsons where like um, Bill Gates and a couple of his like uh, henchmen walk in and, and, and take um, Homer's computer because he's like competing against Microsoft. Do you remember that? Yeah, it almost feels like that kind of thing. I mean, like you went and you literally you kind of poked you poked Google in the eye. You're like you stuck a sign in their backyard. Were you kind of laughing yourself, like expecting someone knock on the door and go, you know what, <laughs> that wasn't as funny as you thought it was. <laughs> they clearly did not like it. Pretty clear. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever hear anyone? Did anyone ever say that you directly or indirectly, or did you hear any kind of specific comments? Yeah, that. well, the well, the news organizations got comments, and um, you know, so they had a kind of an official response that was, you know, we're we're kind of spreading nonsense about them, um, and then I was, I felt at least I was being trolled by Google, several Google employees on Hacker News um, for for a while until I kind of called them out on it and told them to stop, um, and they did, um, but I think it was kind of a direct. It might. I think it might have started before that, but it was a definitely escalated after that. But you think they'd kind of want something like that in the same way that Microsoft, you know, funded Apple at one stage just so that they had someone, you know, to some someone to compare against some kind of competition. You know, you they think- have a very interesting thing going on there. I mean, you could have shows and shows about their kind of strategy, but I don't think they. My picture on it so far is they don't take antitrust seriously at all. Right. Okay. Well, that's yeah, because they they do, they certainly are a monopoly, aren't they? Right. And or or they claim they're you know a legal monopoly, but they have done so many things lately that like the search plus your world thing, um, and other things like um, putting on the new Android phone like Google's at the top, literally on the home screen. You can't remove it, and you can't change a search provider. <laughs> um, like things that would kind of blow your mind with regards to antitrust in comparison to what Microsoft did. Um, but they just don't seem to care about it. But still have the moniker of "Don't do evil" or "Don't be evil," which is very strange. Well, the you know it's 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 funny you mention that about Microsoft because that is very very similar to the kind of stuff that they do with IE and what the the whole the whole beef that the antitrust uh, department had with um, 
with Microsoft was about like, you know, having the, I mean, I guess there was about a lot of things, but one of them was about having IE d- d- just installed by default on Windows. Yeah. Oh yeah, that was the crux of it. I, I had actually took this antitrust class in, in, uh, in school and read the whole, uh, you know, the brief about the, the AT&T brief and the Microsoft brief. And the Microsoft one was largely about the IE default install. I guess that by you doing that, that can have like a massive impact on their bottom line, even though it doesn't really make much very difference to you. Even just a tiny ripple in their in their universe could could mean millions of dollars. Right. Yeah. I, I consider what we're doing almost in kind of Josh Cobman first round capital's notion of shrinking the market. Um, same way kind of Craigslist did is you know we'll instead of having twenty ads on the page, we'll just have one ad. <laughs> um, um, and it kind of take it shrinks the market a bit, but it makes it better for consumers. Right. Well, you, you know, one thing I was thinking is that the um, the reason Google probably isn't that worried about antitrust is if you look back, what happened to Microsoft in the end? Nothing, really. Right. Nothing. Right. That's true. And what 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 has the the antitrust department done against? You know, they've done. They haven't broken up any companies. I mean, I think they've prevented. Was it the the 18th East takeover of uh, T-Mobile acquisition of T-Mobile? They've prevented a couple of little things. Most of the stuff is coming from the EU, I think, right? But there really isn't. I mean, the antitrust department is pretty much toothless, or at least they're not doing it much. Well, I could. You, I think you can make the argument a number of ways, right? So you could say they have. They're toothless until they have teeth. Like they did break up AT and T at some point. So like the yeah, but that was like back like three hundred years ago, right? I mean, well, it's not technology too long ago. It. I mean, like I think it could be possible they they could do it. Um, but but I don't think they would. I, so I agree with you. But you could also make the argument that it stifled Microsoft's um, kind of innovation. It did um, hamstring them, you know, getting into internet and search after a while, getting kind of in, embroiled in those fights. You know, like in the end, it didn't. They didn't actually have to do much because it, the kind of it was moot after a while. You know, it's, it, it almost seems like what Google, the calculation they might be making is like this. Okay, so we're going to be extremely aggressive about this stuff and we'll continue to be aggressive until w- the alerts start going off and we start really getting a sense that the antitrust people are going to come after us, the Justice Department's going to come after us. But because we're the web, we can switch things up easily. You know, it's not like Microsoft, which like, okay, we've printed or we've, we've, we've had all these DVDs, Mercedes made and all these books printed and, you know, all these boxes shipped. I mean, Google can just sort of make, make a quick shift over a few weeks if they feel like the Justice Department is really going to start to take action. So we might as well press as hard as they want because they're so, I mean, compare, I mean, Google is not agile compared to a small company, but they're agile compared to probably the Justice Department taking action. Yeah, I agree with that assessment. I think that's what they're doing. Um, it, it seems a bit unnecessarily risky in some cases. Mm-hmm. Like they're inviting, like they're almost, they want to get the Justice Department involved. You know, kind of like the right. Google Plus one. Um, right. That one is the most egregious to me. Like they're taunting them. Yeah, exactly. What are you going to do? Interesting. Um, so... Okay, I think the other question I was going to ask, I had a two part. I had two questions. Oh, yeah, here's here's the point I wanted to make, which I think I think is kind of make you hear your thoughts on it. The the way you operate, or rather, I would guess the way you grow DuckDuckGo is is really you really use a bootstrapping technique in the sense that you know when you, when you hear about bootstrapping, especially like in like sort of algorithm mode, you 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 take an action, you use the 
winnings of that action and you roll it into your second action, which can be a bigger action. Right, and then the big, and then and the winnings from the big, second action is going to be bigger than the winnings from the first action, and you can roll that into your third action. And, and a lot of times we hear about bootstrapping, people just think, oh, that just means that you just you don't take funding and you just kind of grow something. But really, it's about a series of actions where each action leverages the wins of the previous action. And it seems like you do that very deliberately, especially when it comes to gaining um, sort of uh, a, a press of of DuckDuckGo. Yeah, definitely. I also kind of specifically, um, once we hit a certain level, kind of ignore anything else that doesn't wouldn't move the needle to get to bigger levels. Um, so, like you mentioned, the Hacker News thing. You're right. I don't actively try to get get on there as much, although we respond to feedback and and whatnot. But getting a story on there doesn't necessarily change, you know, our number, our aggregate percentage of searches that much anymore. Right. So you, you kind of had the easy Unfortunately. <laughs> right. I wish it did, right? But it doesn't. Because you've, you've pretty much mastered Hacker News. I mean, I'd imagine that if you, write, if you set, set out to write something that's going hit to the, hit, the, uh, hit number one, so ring the bell number one, you probably could do it maybe one or two out of three times, I would bet. Right? Yeah, I, mean, I, mean, I think you can engineer at this point, but I'm not, I'm not doing that. At this point, I don't even submit stories. I just... Um, post on the Twitter and, and someone generally submits it and then it's kind of a, a a game which you could game but I'm not about does it get off that new page or not you know right right yeah so um, oh it's about switching uh, topics again Justin unless you want to follow up on any of that no no go so you said you set up an office um, I, I would like to hear a little bit about your office I, I was just talking with um, which had uh, just before the show uh, with Curtis, who's the VP of engineering over at Uber. And he was talking about, um, you know, their thoughts on the next office, because right now it's a big open plan and how to get stuff done. People put on their headphones, uh, they'd ignore Skype. They, they go to coffee shops, they stay and work at home, which is kind of crazy to me when I think that's actually similar to probably a lot of startups. You get this open plan and, and it's like, in one sense, it's cool that everything's open because it's very collaborative and there's a lot of quick feedback and you get help from somebody or you can get in, give input on something. But in order to get stuff done, you know, you sometimes you just you, you can't even be there or it's just hard to get stuff done. And, and Joel Spolsky has written a lot about that in terms of how Microsoft would always have every developer has their own office so they can shut the door and get work done. And, you know, when you went to create an office, what are your thoughts on how are you going to do that? I didn't think about it much at all, <laughs> as you might guess. <laughs> Um, I optimize for building location and building coolness, um, <laughs> which, and I, I feel we did good there. I'm going <laughs> to make, make a post and, and post some pictures, but no, I like our office. I mean, one thing about it is we have like more than half our people are scattered around the world. So we're pretty virtual still. Um, mm-hmm. but we, we do have kind of a, a base there and, uh, it, it's not that big an office. I think we have like 1500 square feet or something. And it's there's a, there is an open area, but it's it's also got uh, four rooms. Um, okay. We have uh, so it, there, there's there's more space than we have to do with at the moment. Um, but this summer we're gonna have a bunch of interns in there and some other people, and so there's gonna be more people. I guess we'll see how it goes. Um, but I was I was just gonna see how it evolves, basically. So the, so are most of the developers out in the in a central area with open with like an open plan? And the, the rooms are like like offices that you, people use when they need like a conference room, or how, how did you arrange it? So right now we have, yeah, people are in this open room, and but they don't have to be. Then we have a back room 
which has two desks, which you could work there. No one's in there now. There's a bunch of T-shirts in there. Um, and then we, right. we made one into a conference room, and then I'm actually working in an office, one of the offices, and then um, then there's a lounge. We turned, one, we turned the master office into a lounge. And were you maximizing the cool factor because you figure – when you, when you have a really cool office, it's the kind of place people want to be. It's where, and if you if you're trying to hire talented people, you want to set things up to say, hey, this is this is where you want to be. I mean, this is a cool problem. You're going to have smart, interesting, cool people to work with, and you're going to be in a place you want to be. You're going to want to come in on a weekend, kind of thing. Yeah, I I have not kind of optimized it to that level. I was just more, um, I like I like personally want to be there. It was more of a right. kind of more of a selfish <laughs> thing, I guess. Um, if I'm going to leave the house to go somewhere, then I want it to be nice, you know? Um, right. We've been hiring kind of in this inbound way where we haven't been giving like hard sales like that at all. And we've been mainly taking people who have been in the community to some degree. So the community they live at, and in the community you mean like in Hacker No, Nukes I mean in the DuckDuckGo, yeah, in the DuckDuckGo community. Go. Like we have an IRC channel. Um, and some open source stuff, and they've been working on that. Or if someone comes in, we'll send them over in that direction, and most people just die right there. <laughs> um, right. But some people actually go and become part of that, you know, and culture. And then, you know, people who have been using the site for two years or something kind of really and, get good. And your office is, um, is, it, is it more in Philadelphia, or is it out near where you live in the suburbs? It's out where I live. I, I tried to do you know, um, as hybrid best I could. So it was close to where I live, but it's also walking distance from the train and the Amtrak. Um, mm -hmm. And so you could live in the city pretty easily and, and, and commute there, um, but you don't have to. Okay, so it's, so it's, but is it kind of like in a cool area where there are like, you know, good restaurants and things like that? Is it kind of place that is easy to sell people on? Yeah, I mean it's the suburbs. It's not like it's not like the cool part of Philly, you know. But um, it, it's a nice, yeah, it's a nice little area on the main line. I mean, you'd have to sort of know Philly to know what I'm talking about, or the Philly suburbs. Okay. But um, yeah, it's got a nice little strip. You can walk to a bunch of things there. There's a 24-hour Wawa right next to our place. It, right. I, I think it's turned out really, really well. I mean, if you have a car, there's parking in the back. Um, you guys should come check it out. Oh, <laughs> right, that's cool. One of these days, Justin, we're going to have to go on a tour. We totally are. I, I'd love once to do that. Once we can afford it. <laughs> well, once, once we can get, get, our, you know, get some traction for our own startup. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'd like to hear a little bit about your plans for the future. I mean, you know, you're, you're now what? How many millions of searches a month? 45? Is that right? 45, yes. That is amazing. How long was it since ago when you had 1 million? How long was it since we had 1 million? Hmm. Uh, back in April 2010, we had 1.1, and that's the last month on my traffic stats. <laughs> April 2001, okay. And when you finished your fundraising, you had 7 million? Um, we were in the middle of fundraising. We were at 7. When we finished it, we were at 10. And how long ago was that? Last October. In, in terms of scaling, where you're at right now, how far will that scale? How many million will that go to before you need to even worry about it? Um, we can scale this thing the way we have it architected now pretty far. Um, it's on Amazon. It's pretty modular, and we can just keep spinning up stuff. Um, so I was actually 
curious about that and wondering what it would be to be at like 100 million, but that's only really a factor of two from where we are. And so that's pretty um, easy to see uh, that it wouldn't be that much different. Um, I have started bringing in some people to look at kind of like, you could, you could see where it's going to f- start to fray <laughs> the way okay. I have it set up. Um, so I've been trying to start to think about that, but I don't what see- sort of What sort of places does it fray? I mean, just from, a, it'd be just, I'd be interested to know just from a tech point of view. Yeah, I mean, so Postgres uh, replication, the way I have it set up now is not the greatest. Um, so that's one place that needs to be changed. The other is kind of, um, and, and a lot of people have solved this. I just haven't put a lot of tools around it yet. Um, you know, more automatically uh, spinning up things when necessary and, and whatnot. Um, I remember I asked you, I think I asked you last time, do you, do you crawl the web? So we do have a crawling piece, but not the traditional, uh, the, we're not producing the traditional index that people are. So we're mainly crawling for uh, either the, the zero-click info piece or um, spam. And spam is the, the breadth of it. So we hit we hit a large portion of the domains on the internet, but we don't hit them very deep. And it's mainly to detect if they're we consider them a spam or not. Oh, okay. Right. right. So, well, how how do you deal with the, uh, the sort of black hat SEO problem? It sounds like a huge portion of the web is is just littered with that stuff now. Right. I mean, so from the very beginning, we've tried to aggressively ban them from the results way more than the other engines have. And um, that was one of the first things I did because that was one of the um, problems I found really interesting and, and thought you could add some value there. Um, what's kind of interesting about it is like, I think people do stay on the site longer and they, they kind of notice we have less spam, but it's not immediately obvious, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so it's kind of a hard thing to focus on, and, and, and it's been kind of stagnant. Like I wrote this thing, but it hasn't changed that much in a long time. So I, I'd kind of like to to get someone on that, but it just hasn't been a priority. So if you don't crawl, where where do the the general generic page results come from? Like I understand where the Amazon results come from, and yep, images yep. and stuff, but where's the general pages come from? They've come from a variety of sources over time. We've used. Um, We've used Yahoo and Bing and um, some Blecko and this company called EntireWeb and Yandex. Basically, any other search engine besides Google who has <laughs> a, a kind of uh, core ranking system. And then we take that and we have software that runs on top of it that kind of re-ranks and um, you know, maybe merges some queries we send them. And so we've been able to kind of at some points at least, seamlessly move between sources without changing our results that much and try to use that bottom layer as commodity. But it does, it, it will fray if you try to push it too, too much. Does, is that yeah, a massive cost for you to, to use that? It has thing? gotten a decent bit expensive over time <laughs> right. because the, the, those APIs have started to charge, you know, over time. Um, and so we, that, is, that was, you know, one motivating factor of raising money is, you know, I could you know, not have to worry about that cost for a while. Your, your approach to sort of run, uh, using other search engines as input kind of reminds me of the machine learning. They, call, uh, they think they call it like boosting where they'll take, you, you know, you, you might run like a neural network or a decision tree learner or Bayesian classifier or whatever on some data set and you'll take the results of those, feed those into some kind of uh, aggregator, which or you know, sort of, you know, finds out like, uh, takes the average of the result 
in some cases. I mean, in, in, in a way, it turns out you usually end up with overall better overall results because the weaknesses of any one technique are sort of averaged out and uh, compensated for by the other uh, the other algorithms. I mean, do you see that kind of a thing with what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, so we do more of, um, I don't know how to put this exactly. We, we do more of producing kind of a different result set than maybe averaging um, mm-hmm. based on kind of how we query them. But um, this idea of kind of the meta uh, search engine has been around for a long time. I mean, like Metacrawler, you know, you might have used like way back in the day. I did. Um, and, you know, there's been other ones. They just they just haven't for some reason um, taken off because I think they've been perceived as not independent. Yeah. Right. Um, or something like that. Or maybe they just didn't differentiate on the UI enough or, or add enough value. But let's say, let's say you, get, you build a service up and you're having a billion queries um, a month. At that point, do you then say, okay, it's time that we build our own crawler and we're going to crawl the web ourselves? Right. So the initial kind of focus and idea behind this was there have been a bunch of startups that raised uh, a ton of money, the most recent being uh, Blecko, and then spent a large part of it trying to crawl the web um, and kind of replicate what Google's, uh, you know, and Microsoft has been doing and not doing that great a job at it, not to their uh, discredit, but just because it's ridiculously expensive to do well at this point. Um, And so, you know, I I just think as a startup, it's somewhat silly to then try to compete on that direct basis because you're just, um, you're not really adding any value and you're spinning your wheels and spending all your money. Um, and so, yeah, at some point, maybe it makes sense to doing more of that. And we've already tried to do a little bit. Uh, we increase our crawling more and more around the edges, but to jump to that point where you'd actually use your own index, I, I mean, it's got to be really far away when you're when you're making a lot more money. Okay. And and you, I bet you told us in the first interview that you built, uh, if not all, at least most of your uh, your stuff in Perl. Is that still the case? Yep. Yep, it's uh, it's primarily in Perl. Wow, so you got to be you got to be one of the biggest Perl sites on the web now, I would think. You know, there used to be a bunch of big ones, but I don't. I, I've I've been trying to get that list, but um, I don't know. We're getting bigger. I mean, we we want to be a large part of the Perl community, certainly. Right, and and you, you, you I don't know. Booking dot com is a big one. Which one? Booking. Booking dot com. Yeah, they're what are they? What are, they're like Expedia, but mainly overseas, but they're big overseas. Okay. All right. Now that's kind of interesting because, you know, Perl is sort of, I mean, it's not, it's not like the new hotness, like, uh, I don't know, say Python or, uh, I don't know, Node or whatever it is. Um, I mean, how does it in terms of getting developers for, for Perl? I mean, I know that there are Perl developers and, and, and Perl seems to have like a really hardcore following, just like say Lisp, Lisp does or something. You know, so people who love it and have used it for a long time. I mean, in terms of like finding top-notch developers, is it, do you find it, the fact that you're using not the most, one of the more common languages, has that been a benefit or, or, a, or a detriment in terms of finding talent? I don't know. So we 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 brought a few people in who didn't know any Perl, and then they just learned it. Um, mm-hmm. And so I don't think that had been that much of a barrier. And then we've also attracted some people who are in the Perl community, you know, who also use Subject Go and could easily more jump in. Um, so I, I don't know. I have a hard time answering the question because I don't have a control. Um, right. But 
I don't think it's been that much of a barrier. I mean, I ultimately think these languages are not too different. And what about like being in Philadelphia in terms of finding talent? Do you, do you think that it might be easier for you, to, for you to find talent? Because I know that like a lot of the terms in San Francisco, and I hear them talk about this at Uber because you got Uber and you got Square and Twitter and you know and Stripe and Kaggle and I mean these are just some that I happen to know of, and they're all like literally within a few blocks of each other, and and then you know and then another hundred that I didn't even mention, um, and they're fighting for the same a lot of the same people. Um, they're literally like, you know, a, a, a guy will be interviewing at Uber. We'll just we'll interview at Square the next day or Stripe the day after that. Um, so it's like in one sense, yeah, there's all these cool, there's a lot of big draw. San Francisco seems really exciting with all these tech companies. But then you're in this, uh, you know, death match with all these other super cool, well-funded companies. You're in Philadelphia. So you're, it's not like you're having, you know, these people migrating from all over the world to be in Philadelphia to write code, but yet you don't have one to compete against. Yeah, I mean, I've actually been taking this kind of inbound, slower approach of it, and so I've been trying to stay away from those deathmatch people just altogether, um, right. whether they're in Philly or not. And so we, we've taken people, like I said, across the whole world, but but basically they've all been very slow ramp-ups. Um, and so they'd have to be kind of uniquely interested in us and what we're doing. And I th that's been great so far. I don't know how, um, how long it scales, but that's one of the things about staying small that I kind of like that idea we talked to earlier is where um, you don't go big too fast and kind of end up with a lot of turnover or, or you know, or, or people that you don't like. Um, one thing I've always found strange is like these companies come out and they raise money and they're just like, we're hiring <laughs> right, like, right. You know, like that's it. We're hiring ten people, like in the next two months. Um, and then, I, I, I mean, I don't know because I haven't worked at those. You, you have more experience from interviewing all these people, but like that just doesn't seem like you end up with the people, the exact people that you want at the end of that. Well, I've always heard that uh, when you, which makes sense, I guess, is that when you hire quickly, you can easily lose control of your culture. So, you know, I mean, obviously, a very important part of creating companies, you want to create an environment where you want to work, you, you, you get to pull in the people, the kind of people you want to work with. But if you hire five people at a time and, or 10 people at a time and you like, you know, double your, your staff in six months, I mean, you can quickly end up with a bunch of people here who really aren't really in line with how you want your company to operate. Exactly. And, and I don't know, that seems to be I don't know. For me, it would be a, a, an issue. I, I would really want to take tight control over it. I mean, I think uh, Patrick Collison said it the best. We, inter we interviewed him a couple months ago, and he said that they, they're, one of their big litmus tests is that, you know, I guess if someone passes all of their technical and coding challenges is, is this someone you would come in on a weekend, just hang out with them? If it's a no, then they're not, they're not hired. I listened to that, and that really appealed to me, too. I actually... Uh, I'm less interested. Like I, one of my people I work with does all the technical, more of the technical interview stuff. I'm way more interested in kind of mentality, attitude, and culture, and approach to kind of, you know, the company and things like that. And, and you said also it's kind of virtual. So, what percentage of your of the people are actually in the office versus at home or another part of the country? Um, right now, because we have we have this weird organization where a lot of people are part time, but most of the people are not. In, in Philadelphia or, or at the office. Um, but I think that'll change slowly over time um, to be more like half, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, right now, most people are virtual. We're in hip chat. Uh, 
what do they do? The guys, the people in the office, what, what's the, the job functions? So the, there, there's, uh, me and this other guy in the office, uh, we're kind of full stack along the whole DuckDuckGo platform and, and doing various little tasks and projects within it. Um, and then there's another guy who comes in half time who's been working on the settings in particular. Um, and then everyone else kind of has specific projects, kind of subtasks. There's only been uh, the two of us are floating around everywhere. Hmm. I don't know if that answered your question at yeah, all. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, how, how many, I, I, yeah. I was just trying to get a sense of how many people were, I don't know, business development versus coders. Oh. And it sounds like everyone's coders, right? So everyone, we have one guy who's half time right now who's, who's on the business side, and that's it. Everyone else is technical. How do you advertise on DocDocGo? Oh, we, how did you say advertise? Yeah, like how, how, if I wanted to place an ad on DuckDuckGo, how would I do it? We currently syndicate Microsoft's ad feed. So you have to go to, you can't do it directly. You have to go to Microsoft Ad Center and select that you can go on their partners and through some completely opaque algorithm, you may show up on our site. (laughs) (laughs) Now, is this something that you're, you've just, we're just doing now because it's, you know, it's it's sort of a cheap and easy way to do it, or is is it financially going to scale? So even if you're ten times your size, it's still probably the best way for you to deal with advertising. Oh, you mean this whole syndication thing? Um, yeah, I think, I think it is uh, at least in the foreseeable future. I mean, there have been a bunch of big companies who are much uh, had bigger than us, although our trajectory is good, like AOL and Ask, who generally syndicate Google's feed. Maybe put a little bit on top of it, but they don't. They didn't really get up their own ad network. Um, the only other people really out there were Yahoo and Microsoft, and then they merged. Um, and so there's really only two good search feed for ads. It's it's Google's and Microsoft's. Would you ever consider using Google's? Um, so honestly, we would, but they um, they don't want to um, uh, do it without sharing the IP address. I see. So what, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? When you, what we've been trying to do is maintain um, privacy on the ads as much as possible. Okay. And okay. so the line there we've been drawing is, you know, just like we don't store IP addresses, we don't want to share the IP address with the advertiser unless you clicked on it. Um, and so uh, Google, you know, that's that's against their current terms. Or, you know, they won't make an exception for us at this point. Right. Wow. Huh. And uh, I don't. So, Justin, you got any more questions? Because I'm. Uh, no, I'm good. I, mean, I, mean, I, haven't, I think it's been just a really, really in- interesting interview. And uh, I mean, it's been great to catch up. Yeah. Do you have anything uh, you'd like to talk about? Anything we didn't ask you? Anything would be cool to, cool to talk about? Um. No. I want to ask you stuff after the call. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Okay. Well. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, it's been great having you on. I really appreciate you. Uh, taking the time to come on. I, I, like I said, uh, I think I said this before the, uh, the show started is that, you know, I, I, I kept seeing you just r- rise in, uh, in fame and fortune. So qu- and I was like, you know, we're never going to get him on the show again. So the fact that we actually got you on is, uh, it's really cool. So yeah, it's been a blast catching up and, uh, maybe we can also get you on for a panel show one of these days and do one of those. Those are always a lot of fun. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. All right. That's a wrap. We're out. Welcome to episode 179 of Texting.
hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. Now, introducing today's guest, let me first start by saying that in the startup world, you'd need to be, well, oh shit. <laughs> I feel like it's getting a little too fancy. I thought <laughs> I had something prepared here. <laughs> this big wide up. <laughs> <laughs> like, holy crap, he's going to do a triple backflip. <laughs> what I wanted to say was something along the lines of how crazy it is to take on Google. Anyone would be crazy to take on Google. But then to actually start to get some traction in the search engine market and then to get funding to take on Google is astonishing. Our next guest is Gabriel Weinberg. Welcome to the show. 